Hello, and welcome back to another Path Recap. My name is Chase, and I'm one of your narrators. Today, we'll be taking a look back at Season 2 of Another Path. If you're new to the show, welcome to those returning. Thank you so much for sticking around. And of course, thank you to our Patreon backers, Zan, Carlin, and Atan for their support. If you'd like to support the show, please check us out over at Patreon, patreon.com slash ghostlightmedia. With that, sit back, relax, and enjoy your trip back down another path. The world is changing. 51 years ago, the War of the Wilds came to a stalemate. The people of the Greynor Peninsula set all plant life ablaze to stop the stranglehold and built a mighty wall to keep the wilds at bay. All the while, they sat atop their monument, never truly knowing why this all began. A likeness of peace blanketed the blasted lands. One year ago, it all changed. An ancient god, once bound by old magic, found himself freed and took his vengeance as his shackles were shattered. The mountainous city of Bulwark paid a grave price. But in the wake of this destruction comes the first glimpses of true and honest peace. Our heroes venture from their familiar homeland into the fullness of what their world was before the war, a world they've touched but never truly seen. They find themselves caught between a land that has tried to end their lives hundreds of times over and a country they helped decimate. Under the canopy, they seek glory, truth, and salvation. The world is changing, and their hands will guide it. This is the story of the group previously known as the Ages Three. Soldiers, smugglers, and sons, who found themselves caught in the tumultuous tides of gods, kings, and powers beyond their initial understanding. After spending a year of their lives in hiding after triggering the event we now know as the Decimation, they are now called upon by the leaders of their enemy, the Wilds, to help broker peace between the two warring countries, and to aid the re-ascension of the recently freed god, Amorea Dejani. They are... Mordecai Greenstone, the Shifter Barbarian and Druid. Reeling from the loss of his brother Mako during the decimation, Mordecai spends a year hard at work, grappling with his heritage. Only ever having ventured into the wilds as a spy, he struggles to imagine how he can view this country as his homeland. Zephyr Shenastilioth, the dragonborn warlock and bard. Zephyr ensured the story of their deeds was recorded and committed to memory, so that all may know the truth of the atrocities committed by the late King Greynor. Getting to see the mages he smuggled to safety in the past find a new, free life underground brought him comfort, but the time to continue forward draws near. Captain Jackson Silver, the elven fighter and cleric, in the wake of freeing Amarea Dejani, Jackson swore an oath to the emancipated god to help him regain the power that was taken from him and restore him to his rightful place in the Pantheon. The path will be long and dangerous, but a vow is a vow and Amorea deserves justice. The day has come for the former Aegis Three to begin their journey into the wilds. Their destination, the city of Lee, the capital city of the wilds. Joining them is the godling, Amorea Dejani, who keeps his red draconic scales hidden away most days. Their old friend, Bailet Haram, 
more affectionately known as Master B, a black dragonborn warlock who was with them when Amarea was freed, and an amber-forged scout known as Gamma. Gamma informs them that they will be traveling underground for several days, their wagon being pulled at a steady pace by a horse of a similar construction to the Amberforged. Once they enter the wilds, a new guide will take them to Lee. The venture is dull, tedious, and often very dark. Long stretches of travel take place in total darkness and in relative silence as to not startle any subterranean dangers. Their only true obstacle comes in the form of an ambush by a group of pallid gray-skinned dwarves, one of which piloting a strange mechanical construct. They are defeated, and Amarea's gifts of the forge are able to repair the damage to one of the Ambersteed. While picking their pockets, Zephyr discovers some strange steel coins, one side stamped with the image of a brain. The group emerges into daylight, and deeper into the wilds than even Mordecai had previously ventured. Lush greenery surrounds them, birds sing, and animals chitter, and the former ages three begin to realize just how perilous their journey may be. Gamma informs them that their guide will be approaching soon, and offers more information about their goal. They are not the only group on the way to Lee. An official delegation from Graynor will be making their way to the Wild's capital, as well as a retinue of Amberforge from their previous hideaway, the underground city of Erden. Jackson, Zephyr, Mordecai, and Balet, as the first-hand witnesses to Amarea's fate and the key to his freedom, have been called largely to represent him in these meetings. As Amarea recalls, he was worshipped as a deity to many beyond the wall, and the leaders of the wilds quickly learned of his freedom. A dwarven figure rides into the clearing, mounted atop a mule. This, they learn, is Chiron. Chiron will be their guide the rest of the way to Lee. A veteran explorer and ranger, he quickly sizes up the group and asks if they are the group known as the Decimators. A dawning and damning realization falls over the group as they are no longer the Ages Three. Nodding solemnly, and with their new guide in tow, the Decimators begin this next leg of their journey. Along the way, the Decimators take stock of their goals, Mordecai, taking a stroll around their camp in wolf form, stumbles into the realm of his old friend, the Wanderer. With the patrons now freed, they can now expand their reach and reestablish connections with those of the outside of Greynor. He goes so far as to give Mordecai his true name, Saunter a Wind, so that he may invoke it to find his fellow followers. Zephyr butts heads briefly with Amarea, who suggests that the leaders of the wilds may be keeping artifacts of power hidden away, in which case he would need to steal them back. Zephyr declares that he will do what he can to aid Amarea, but he will not steal for him. He does not want to repeat the decimation at Lee. Taking a walk to clear his head, he has a strange run-in with his patron, the Deep. He has shown a strange, repeating series of rooms in an uncomfortably dull light. After attempting to navigate it for some time, the deep reveals itself to Zephyr, explaining this ever-repeating maze is where the fallen warlocks of the deep go, should they ever fail. It apologizes to Zephyr, saying that he was not intended to see this. Jackson and Amarea discuss what the future holds for him. The end goal for Amarea is regathering his old power becoming unto a god once again, 
Jackson realizes this will mean that, if all goes well and their goals are completed, that Amarea will depart this mortal plane and Jackson will be left behind to carry the torch. Jackson ponders the future, though still firm in his convictions. Kyron explains over a map that he'll be taking them a more roundabout way to Lee, as to avoid any unnecessary nastiness. They will be passing through a number of settlements, the first among them being Senge, a large market town. As they arrive, the decimators see for the first time what normal life is like in the wilds. They see peoples of all sorts, including those they've rarely ever seen. Elves, shifters, goblins, minotaurs, kobolds, and more. People go about their daily business, tending shops, gathering groceries, talking and laughing and enjoying the day. A far cry from the cult of Yarrow and Goliaths and Changelings they tangled with back home. Chiron lets them wander as he tends to business after having acquired rooms at the ill-kept keep. Jackson and Amarea examine some religious sites in town, which take the form of large trees with depictions of the lords of the forest carved into the bark. Yarrow, Lord of Reaping, Linso, Lord of Storms, Galo, Lord of Tangle, and Mavo, Lord of the Pack. They see the lords cast in a different light. For example, Yarrow representing Bountiful Harvest, and Mavo representing Family. Jackson, now ever seeking more to learn, finds what he was looking for and takes his leave. Mordecai and Zephyr procure some magical items from a trading post known as Black's Best. Trading away the crying hippo found beneath Concetre, they walk away with some new belongings, most notable of which is a set of basilisk fangs. As Zephyr rejoins the others at the ill-kept keep, Mordecai wanders off to the holy sites. Approaching in the form of a wolf with a filched amulet to Mavo around his neck, Mordecai continues to struggle with his heritage. As a shifter, and someone who deeply values family, he feels a connection to Mavo that he has failed to shake. A friendly priest offers Mordecai his ear, who seeks insight into Mavo. He learns that Mavo seeks to form a great pack so that it may face the great dangers beyond. He asks the priest if that's why Mavo took his brother from him on the day of C-34. Finding no comfort in the priest's platitudes, he departs and continues to process these feelings. All joined together at the ill-kept keep, the decimators make conversation with a group of four in druidic garb. A friendly shifter named Atticus inquires if they've noticed the harsh smell around town. They learn the nearby hardcrafter's quarter has been dumping waste, and it has reached critical mass. The druids are here to fix it, and ask the party for help. They agree, and join the druids while Amorea and Master B stay at the keep. Venturing into Tanner's Bog, the druids and the decimators are attacked by a massive, polluted, acidic elemental. They defeat it, but this is not the source of the pollution, only a symptom. Traveling further, they find a strange black metal machete lodged into a tree stump. Locking it in an earthen shell, the druids and the decimators return back to Senge successful. They learn the druids hail from a group known as the Batulan Brotherhood, and while taking the chance to talk to a shifter of the wilds, Mordecai learns that he and Atticus just so happen to be cousins. The members of the Brotherhood hand off a symbol of friendship and continue on their way to dispose of the artifact. The decimators finish gathering supplies, and after a night's rest, meet back up with Chiron, who has acquired mounts for the rest of their journey. They are shown to these odd, horse-sized, bat-like creatures known as Chirip Striders. They have the ability to deftly navigate higher branches of the densely packed trees, making for swifter, often safer travel. 
Before they depart, Zephyr takes some strips of leather and punctures them with the basilisk fangs they acquired earlier, which he then wraps around Mordecai's knuckles. After some additions and tweaks, the weapon is dubbed the Fistbiteys, and they saddle up to make way for their next stop, Clove. En route, they are ambushed amid the canopy, but beat a hasty retreat. Mordecai noticed their foes were darklings, dark fey creatures they last saw in an overgrown plains watch. Chiron explains the veil between the realms, namely the Feywild, is quite weak in many areas throughout the extensive woods. Jackson ponders if there's a chance he might reconnect with Gaia. Clove is largely an agricultural community, and as it happens, Chiron's hometown. They take lodging at the Ever After, an inn run by Chiron's family. While taking stock over drinks, the decimators are approached by another new type of person, a tortle. This young tortle boy, Morris, tells the group his boss wants to meet with them and mentions the right of ages. Intrigued, Mordecai and Zephyr go to investigate. They approach the home of a Mr. Orem, which is distinctly Graynorian in design. A realization clicks for Mordecai. Orem translates from the wild tongue to gold, a name borne by one of the sorcerer's families of Bulwark. Matric Orem indeed hails from Graynor, but did not want to meet the group himself. He serves as a warlock to a patron of the wilds, known simply as Luck. It is Luck who wishes to speak with them. After conferring with Jackson, the trio returns to Mr. Orem, then enters the realm of Luck, which takes the form of a lavish casino. Luck greets them and tells them what she wants. She has learned of an old temple to Amorea, which houses a pair of godly artifacts, and figured this information would be valuable to them. She says that she knew Amorea long ago, and also wishes to see him return to his full power. Luck, after all, is about balance. The catch, however, is that she requires a box from the temple, and the decimators are not, under any circumstances, to open the box. Tentatively agreeing, the decimators and Amorea set out for Mr. Orem's mines to find the temple, while Master B begins taking a lay of the political landscape at Jackson's suggestion. Arriving at the mines, they meet a half-orc guard by the name of Burl, who gives them some more information on the area. As they venture in, they marvel at the wonder that is a complete, albeit worn, temple to the draconic forge god. Elaborate murals, kilns, and tools, places for the congregations to gather, for the workers to rest, for the guard to stand vigil. They traverse this ancient temple, navigating the splitting pathways to find the switches to open the main door, one in the foreman's office and one in the pontiff's chambers. Aside from a few wild monsters that wandered in, they walk the temple without seeing a soul. That is, until the main door is opened, into the space where service would be held. The rows of pews are filled with the undead forms of long-forgotten followers, with a flaming, sledgehammer-wielding figure at the pulpit. This, they learn, is the Cinder Pontiff. The pontiff speaks against Amorea Dejani, accusing the godling of abandoning his people. For eons they waited, and their dedication soured into anger and rage. A massive brawl breaks out within the church. Mordecai and Zephyr begin clearing the horde while Jackson and Amorea face the pontiff head-on, who strikes with fiery retaliation. The pontiff's rage knows no bounds as he sets his own followers aflame to wreak more havoc. 
as the party suffers blows, burns, and heavy punishment. They approach their last legs. At last, a magical burst from Zephyr, a tackling to the ground by Mordecai, and a final thrown axe to the head from Jackson brings the pontiff to his destruction. The victory is bittersweet. They all, Amorea, most of all, have seen firsthand the fate of his followers from long past. But an ancient manual and the pontiff's sledgehammer are returned to Amorea, who feels his power alight at the return of these artifacts. And, in addition to retrieving the box requested by Luck, the decimators each find a reward to take with them. Jackson recovers prismatic dragon-scale armor, whose magic allows resistances to a variety of elements. Mordecai recovers a fiery hammer known as the Workman's Gavel. And Zephyr, with help of his homunculus Rogar, discovers a strange ingot of unknown material. Upon touching it, the material warps and surrounds his hand, bearing his focus to the deep. After some worried moments, the material takes shape into a black metal gauntlet with a wicked sheen. The deep's grasp, which increases Zephyr's connection to his patron and the power he invokes from her. Burned and battered, they return topside to Burl, who, after a quick pitch from Jackson, steps aside with Amorea to see about joining the Dragon Knights. The decimators return to Mr. Orum and to Luck within her realm. The box is returned and the deal is completed. Seeing their work is done, Mordecai asks if now they can learn what was in the box. Luck indulges them and answers, Nothing. The box was empty. Instead, the hinges bore a very specific type of rust that would have worn away had the box been opened. As a reward for their task, Luck grants them each a fragment of her power, a little luck to call upon when they might need it. With a job well done and a step further towards Amore's ascension, they return to the Ever After for some food and rest. Heading upstairs, they find Master B has converted their suite into what can only be described as an evidence dungeon. Taking his task to heart, Master B dove headfirst into the political landscape of Lee and the Wilds and shares his findings with the others. Lee is, and always has been, ruled by four archbishops, one to each of the four lords of the forest. The other major faction in Lee is Masters of the Craft Guilds. Currently, the guilds and the bishops are competing for popularity, power, and control. Leading the guilds is the head of the Casters Guild, a tabaxi named Mantellum. Why precisely this subtle civil war has broken out is unclear, but what is, is that whoever controls Lee controls the wilds. Fearing that conflicts may come to a head in tandem with the peace talks, the decimators brace themselves for the landscape ahead. While the others rest, Mordecai ventures into the nearby wood. Long has he considered the nature of Mavo and the wilds and the ties between this land, him and his druidism, learning to appreciate where his power and lineage hails from without converting himself to it fully. He affixes the Mavo amulet to his necklace and feels more at ease with himself and the wilds. The departure from Clove is interrupted by a missive. Gaia wishes to see Jackson and the others again and sends word through an intermediary by the name of Jack. They are eager to reconnect with the Green Lady, but are suspicious of the coincidental namesake of the messenger. Regardless, they set off to meet with Jack, who seems as trustworthy as any stranger upon initial meeting. Swiftly, he leads them into the Feywild. Just as the Decimators had only skirted the edges of the wilds, overwhelmed by the fullness of them, 
so too was Jackson quickly overwhelmed by the entirety of the Feywild, and the bitter reminder that the last time he stepped into the realm of Gaia was as a human. He finds comfort in his companions, and Amorea, and he finds his balance again. Jackson humbly takes caution, and hands off his weapons to Amorea and Mordecai, concerned that his instincts may lead to needless harm. United and uneasy, they continue to follow Jack through the Feywild. Cutting through a clearing, the group spies a massive creature drinking from the pool in the center. Zephyr notices that Jack has vanished, and this large, lizard-like creature looks hungry. Mordecai acts quickly and charms the creature, but a second one approaches from behind. Mordecai urges the first one to depart, which it does, in the blink of an eye. The remaining, aptly named Blink Rex, attacks the party but is quickly dispatched, only to reveal the mocking laughter of Jack up a tree. Zephyr blasts Jack from the tree, and an already on-edge Jackson reflexively moves to strike in Zephyr's direction. Quick action and calming words from Zephyr and Amorea return Jackson to his senses just as quickly as they left him. They turn to see Jack splayed out on the ground, only to see him be slammed into a tree by none other than Gaia herself. She admonishes the unseely messenger and banishes him. The tension in the air fades as Gaia's presence fills the glade. It is a warm reunion, not just with the former Aegis Three, but with Amorea as well, leading them to the place that she and many others call home. Jackson and Amorea go to speak with Gaia, while Saphir and Mordecai speak with some of the others in Gaia's garden. Jackson and Gaia spend some comforting time together. Jackson confides in Gaia about his recent flashbacks and the realization that he will never quite be okay. Gaia consoles him, offering that it's okay not to be okay. Eventually, the tide of the conversation turns to Amorea. They find themselves in similar straits. Both Gaia and Amorea have been weakened over many, many years of neglect, as have many other gods, deities, and patrons. Gaia proposes an alliance to form a new pantheon made of these forgotten figures to protect their flocks in spite of their creators abandoning them. After conferring with Jackson, who speaks wisdom to creating new things instead of forcing old and broken systems to work, Amorea agrees and the fire and the flower join their strength. Meanwhile, Mordecai and Saphir are entertaining some of the denizens of the garden, and Saphir is reunited with an old friend, Yandi, the gnomish druid he helped to smuggle out of Despera so, so long ago, and who he later discovered had been taken captive in the mage prison, the Hedron, in Concentre. They reconnect and learn that practically all of the prisoners of the Hedron were released, including Mordecai's uncle, Cenus. Eventually, Jackson and the rest return, and Gaia bids them farewell from her garden. Much to their surprise, their jaunt through the Feywild landed them much closer to Lee than originally planned, and with a couple of days before they are expected. Making their approach in the midst of winter holiday, they accept the hospitality of a local farmer, Gaudium, and his family at the Far Reach Farms. They enjoy their company and try to take the temperature of the city concerning the guilds and the bishops. Gaudium, a working man and a follower of the Lord of Storms, sees the middle ground between the two sides. Urged on by Chiron, the decimators eventually depart, thanking Gaudium and his family for the kindness and holiday cheer. The Decimators, 
with Chiron in tow, venture into Lee for the first time. As wintertime festivities surround them, Chiron leads them to a tavern, the locked cask. They meet with a proprietor, a yellow-scaled dragonborn named Ed, and decide to split up to take in the city for a bit. Jackson goes to get a feel for the military presence in town. He winds up at a bar called The Favor and Protection, posing as a soldier of the wilds. He gathers information and finds himself an opportunity to perhaps serve as an armed security for a meeting of the guildmasters coming up. Zephyr finds a tailor shop, the fanciful duck, and its proprietor, a finely dressed and well-trimmed dwarven man named Bryce. After indulging a bit in Bryce's wares, Zephyr discovers that across the street is a loud and rowdy building. Bryce informs him that that place is called the Hood and the Fist, Lee's number one spot for anonymous bare-knuckle brawling. Dashing through the streets, Zephyr collects Mordecai, and after acquiring an eagle mask from Bryce, sails headfirst into the ring. Mordecai adopts the mantle of Root, the eagle, in honor of his deceased brother, and handily wins his first few matches. The operator of the Hood and the Fist, a man named Mick, informs Mordecai that later on in the week they would be featuring group bouts and magic bouts as well. Taking his victory pay in steel coins and tucking the information away, Zephyr and Mordecai return to the locked cask to meet up with Jackson and the others. During the evening, Mordecai charms a mouse with a very deep voice to help guard the room. He names the mouse Hugo. Jackson received words from Addie about a strange occurrence that she experienced, including some type of magic creature she had never seen before. Their old friend, Magus Diamond, informed Addie that the creature is known as a mind flayer. Unsure what to do with this knowledge, Jackson informs her that they are well and have arrived in Lee safely. They go to take their rest and prepare for the next day. Planning to split up once again, Zephyr and Master B go to investigate the Temple District. Jackson follows through on guard duty for the Guildmasters, and Mordecai and Chiron return to the Hood and the Fist to take a walk about town. Zephyr and Master B catch an early drink at the bar called the Unstrung Bow. Chatting with the gnome barkeep, Benicio, they learn that the archbishops will be leading a procession just outside soon, leading up to the main temple of Lee to hold service for the holidays. The dragonborn warlocks step out to watch, and eventually follow all the way to the temple known as the Hall of Open Secrets. The hall is named as such due to its acoustics. Voices, even whispered ones, are amplified and can be heard well across the hall. Zephyr and Baelit also learn the identities of the archbishops. Messus, an elven woman, is the archbishop of reaping. Turbedo, a Shubil Ericocra, is the archbishop of storms. Grex, a shifter man, is the archbishop of the pack. And Ligo, another elven woman, is the archbishop of the tangle. Accompanying Ligo is a halfling individual known as a Gus, or the speaker of the tangle. Ligo, they learn, is mute and communicates through hand gestures, which Agus translates. The sermon the archbishops give centers on forgiveness, an apropos topic with the peace talks just a few days away. Mordecai returns to Mick at the Hood and the Fist and learns more about the types of bouts held, as well as the clientele. One of the guildmasters, Mo of the Builders Guild, is a frequent guest. Mordecai leverages his performance for some face time with Mo should he win. After that, he and Chiron take in the city. Mordecai finds a small, worn-down worship area to the guides, the gods of Graynor Peninsula, 
as well as a temple to the lords of the forest, though not as opulent as the Hall of Open Secrets. Within, he speaks with a Mavo priest. They discuss family, what family means to Mavo, and what Mavo means to being a shifter. Feeling more comfortable, Mordecai mentions his father's service as an acolyte to the faith, and any such records there would be of him. He learns that such records, if they exist, would be held in the Hall of Open Secrets, but records from that time are few and far between. There was an upheaval some twenty years ago, and a change of leadership among the archbishops truly overnight. Only Messus, Archbishop of Reaping, remains from before that time. Jackson departs for guard duty, and ends up in a meeting with almost all the guildmasters. The only ones absent are the heads of the Builders, Beastmasters, and Casters, the most latter of which is Mantellum, who Master B warned them all about. The meeting itself is quite boring, but Jackson gets the chance to talk with fellow security. According to one, Mantellum is powerful enough to take on any of the Archbishops alone. They feel confident that Mantellum can take power when he wants to. Jackson also learns that Mantellum is a relative newcomer, being otherwise unknown until he made a splash some two or three years ago. The previous head of the Caster's Guild was killed in a scuffle with Holy Guard, and Mantellum succeeded them. Completing his mission and receiving his payment, Jackson finds a folded note in his pocket. The note reads, The people rise. Join us and be heard. The info leads to a rally for Mantellum and his movement. The Decimators reunite and exchange information. With a day left before they are expected to meet with the Archbishops, they try to keep their options open. Despite tensions brewing between the bishops and the guildmasters, this is not the reason they came to Lee. They came to facilitate peace and restore Amareya. If things escalate, there's room to reconsider, but for now they do their best to lay the groundwork for future options. Jackson and Zephyr will join Mordecai in the ring at the Hood and the Fist to try to gain some face time with Moe, while Balet and Chiron go to the rally Jackson learned about. They visit Bryce at the Fanciful Duck and acquire more masks for fighting, a badger for Zephyr, and a pair of green-tinted shades for Jackson. Into the fray, Zephyr takes on a magic bout, while Jackson and Mordecai team up for a two-versus-two mixed bout. The entire party emerges victorious, and they are rewarded with their choice of some fine magic items. Zephyr takes the Coin of Redux, granting him a one-off, very brief reversal of time. Mordecai takes the Pendant of Eagle's Watch, allowing him the ability to cast his vision high into the sky. Jackson picks up a voucher good for a gear upgrade at the best smith in Lee, the Iron Thistle, where he plans to improve his armor. After collecting their bounty, they meet and talk with Moe, the master of the Builder's Guild. Throughout their conversation, they learn Moe and Mantellum are similarly aligned. Moe offers work on behalf of Mantellum, wet work, as he calls it. Mordecai leaves his answers as vague as he can, but not being as smooth as Zephyr, perhaps lets a little too much of the truth slip. Regardless, they take their prizes and return to the locked cask for one more night. That night, Mordecai uses an item the group found long ago in the forests near Despera, and in offering it to Hugo the Thick Mouse, permanently endears Hugo to Mordecai, adding one more critter to the party. Their peaceful night is disrupted as Chiron and Balet return from the rally clearly in distress. Chiron holds it together just long enough to make it to the privacy of their rooms. He reveals his hand, which was crushed and practically destroyed. The group performs what healing they can, but the extent of the damage is well beyond their capabilities. 
Bailet tells them the building the crowd was gathered in collapsed mid-speech. It is currently unclear how many casualties there were. Chiron and Bailet got out as quickly as they could. Their collective fears of conflict disrupting the peace talks are growing more and more palpable. The following morning, Jackson awakes to find Amareus speaking with Chiron, observing his injured hand. With some encouragement and material, Amareus finds a fragment of his old power. He melts steel coins within his hand, and with Chiron's permission, molds the metal into Chiron's broken hand. Chiron screams in pain, but it is well worth it, as his hand is mended and the molten steel becomes one with the limb. Jackson smiles, seeing Amareya truly perform the work of a god of the forge. The group departs the locked cask and circles around to the front of the city, putting up the guise that they were just now arriving. They are led into town by guards of Lee, watching the people gather along the streets to see their arrival. There seems to be at least a little more support for Greynorians within the city than they initially expected. They ride all the way to the Hall of Open Secrets, where Saphir visited the day before. There, they all formally meet the archbishops. Saphir, having long prepared himself for statecraft, makes a strong first impression by greeting the archbishops by name before their introductions. A mixed reaction ripples through the archbishops, clearly caught off guard, but the decimators are welcomed nonetheless and invited into the hall. Chiron departs, his job fulfilled, and the rest of the group meets with the archbishops in a conference room. There, the sharing of information begins. The archbishops fully admit to having spies and scouts tracking the progress of the Rite of Aegis, and they are aware of the events until the Aegis Three ascend the mountains into Bulwark. They have no knowledge of what transcended within or upon the mountain until a dragon burst forth. They reveal that Amareya was the reason behind the War of the Wilds. The lords of the forest issued their commands to the archbishops, and the war was set in motion. Interestingly, however, the archbishops were not aware of the breadth of the lords' reasoning until after Amareya was freed. The bishops knew that the lords of the forest were seeking something, and they had been doing so for centuries. At some point, their attention had been directed to the peninsula. The actions of the archbishops were largely guided by faith trusting in the guidance of their lords and gods. So for decades, a war was waged by the wilds without clear motivation. The decimators ask about the encounters with factions from the wilds, the attack at Gaitworth Academy, the burning scarecrow at the inn out there, the madman beneath the temple in the forest near Despera, and the force led by Mordecai's uncle beneath Concetre. All but the last are dismissed as the actions of an extremist group, the Hunters. The attempt to destroy Concetre was primarily aimed at the Hedron, the mage prison. Archbishop Grex made his distaste for the Hedron readily known. The bishops acknowledge the existence of the Hunters, but plainly state that they were at war and the Hunters weren't their problem not looking to disrupt the peace talks to come and begin a tally of casualties, the meeting comes to an uneasy rest until the question of what comes next is asked. Out of the window, their attention is drawn to a golden forest on the horizon. The autumnal line, it is called. The bishops claim it to be a cursed and dangerous place, 
but it is also the resting place of a great temple to Amorea Dejani, the Crucible of Light. Taking the shape of a dragon carved into the mountain, it is there the archbishops believe Amorea will be able to fully regain his power. The bishops have arranged for a guide to lead the decimators and Amorea through the autumnal line and see their quest to completion. The bishops as well find an end in seeing Amorea, the entity their gods spent so long searching for, return to his rightful place in the celestial plane. As things are wrapping up, there is a commotion at the door. Mo, the guildmaster, forces his way into the meeting, enraged at the bishops. He accuses them of being responsible for the attack at the Mantellum rally, which the bishops ardently deny. Mid-conversation, Mo notices the decimators and recognizes them despite the disguises they were wearing previously. He drops a hint of where he'll be if anyone wished to talk, and storms out. Inquiring, the bishops admit that the guildmasters have become a nuisance in the city, but one they are dealing with. They conclude their meeting, and the group is seen to their chambers within the Hall of Open Secrets. They are led there by a halfling named Penitus, or Penot for short. They serve as the major domo for the temple, and he excuses himself after showing the group to their rooms. They debrief. A combination of shock, frustration, and affirmation spreads across the party. There is still time before the contingent from Greynor is set to arrive, so the decimators decide how to best spend their free time. Zephyr talks about wanting to get his old Aegis tattoos redone, and Jackson and Mordecai agree. They also realize they have another batch of drug bugs, which may be useful. The last time they used them, they learned some very pertinent information. It's possible it happens again, though Zephyr has reservations about using them because Carrie is no longer with him. They do, however, have Master B, a warlock, to carry the Awakened Seer. Baylet actually reveals his own small batch of drug bugs, or, called by their proper name, Golden Inspiration. They leave the drug bugs with Baylet to prepare while they go get their tattoos redone. They ask Panat for a good place to get such work done, and they suggest a place known as the Sword Quill, an unassuming building down by the docks. He says that these tattoos hurt in a way that doesn't go away quite right, but they provide some magical power for the price. Eagerly, they make their way to the Sword Quill. Within, they meet Rakar, a full-blooded orc and an expatriate of Greynor. For coin and stories of home, Rakar agrees to redo the Aegis tattoos. Each of the decimators recalls some of their time in Bulwark, where Rakar says he and his family were banished from. Mordecai shares the games and adventures he and his siblings would go on within the city. Jackson recounts the trials of C-34. Zephyr strikes a chord on his mandolin and plays the Ballad of the Ages Three, the story of their past adventures. As they speak, Ricard wields a shadowy quill with a sword-like tip, and the work begins. Mordecai regains the winding roads of the Wanderer and the scimitars of the General, and with it, the ability to invoke the Wanderer's fiery vengeance. Zephyr regains the black ribbons of the Deep and the eyes of the Awakened Seer, and gains the ability to further transform himself beyond simple illusion. Jackson regains the vines and leaves of Gaia, and further ties his connection with the Fae, allowing him to blink short distances at will. The work done, Ricard paid, and their arms sore and bleeding, they return back to their chambers at the Hall of Open Secrets. By the time they have returned, Master B has prepared the Golden Inspiration. Bracing themselves for the strangeness ahead, they dive in. And just like that, the Silver Scythe, the Old Way, and the tech lock returned to a futuristic pulp neon bulwark. 
already in pursuit of their quarry, the evasive Dr. Cellophase. The Aegis heroes arrive at a destroyed section of Old City Hall, which landed not far from the mountaintop. Within, they find a crown, which Jackson dons briefly before realizing some powerful magic is held within. Moving forward quickly, they discover the Doctor, as well as his ally, Grand Justice Vin. Strange magics turn the heroes into adorable raccoons as they pursue the villains through the rainy streets of the city. A high-speed chase through the markets of the mages' district ends in a well-placed trap, sending Vin and the Doctor's car flying through the air. The heroes shift out of raccoon form and stand poised to fight Dr. Cellophase, a strange alien figure with a squid-like face. The same type of creature that Addie warned Jackson of. In the midst of the battle, Jackson finds himself stunned by the creature, but then freed by an outside influence that reached into his mind. He realizes it's the voice of the missing and presumed dead mare, or rather king, Graynor. In that moment of lucidity, the Mind Flayer is struck down. Master B appears shortly after, destroying some pursuing Amberforged. He has taken the mantle of the Unflinching, another hero of Neo-Bulwark. Reunited and the threat passed, it was time for answers. Carrie appears high in the sky, in a place where the moon should be overhead. They ask questions of the Mind Flayer, of Graynor, about something referred to as the 13th and more. But answers are limited. The last piece of information that Carrie can reveal is perhaps the most damning. King Graynor isn't dead. You can't kill a lich with the phylactery still intact. A horrific realization dawning, the decimators awake back in their chambers. The gravity of the situation quickly falls on Zephyr, a practiced mage, who explains the severity to others. Master B and Jackson quickly begin mapping out connections to their problems at large, while Mordecai helps everyone prepare for the day ahead. Mid-conversation, Baylit freezes, staring at the tattoo on his arm that marks his station, a tattoo that served as his connection to Graynor. Thinking back, Mordecai recalls his mother having a bracelet that blocked the connection. Master Beak fetches his own, saying he nearly threw it away. With the contingent from Graynor so close to Lee, Mordecai sends an animal messenger to his mother, telling her to don the bracelet if she has it. The decimators discuss the ramifications of Graynor being a lich, the possibility of every King Graynor being the same King Graynor, and the scope of power he must possess. They feel the need to alert Arkdrew and Leia as soon as possible, but privately. They agree to ride out and meet the Graynorian ambassadors before they arrive at the gates of Lee. The decimators leave at dusk and meet the Graynor contingent outside the walls near Far Reach Farms, where they first stopped in the area. They see soldiers, amber-forged, and some familiar faces in the form of Colonel Coppersot, Grand Justicar Vin, and, of course, Archdruid Leia Sebulwark. Mordecai and Zephyr quickly fill Leia in on what they've discovered in private, while Jackson and Amorea stand watch outside the tent. Leia reels at the information, and uses a magical mirror to contact their friend Magus Diamond back in Despera. Together, they put forth some sort of plan. Diamond says she has people she can call on to investigate and find this crown. 
Satisfied, she bids Diamond farewell, and asks the two what their next step is. Mordecai shares their plan to venture through the autumnal line and restore Amorea. Leia grows tense at the mention of Amorea. Zephyr, with his gifts from the deep, is able to read Leia's surface thoughts. All that's going through her head is a repeating phrase. He killed my son. Leia calls in Amorea to talk privately. Mordecai insists he stays, and Leia permits it. Leia, calm but stern, lays the blame for her son Mako's death at his feet, which he does not deny. She also accuses him of pulling Mordecai away from his family, which Mordecai rebukes, saying it was his choice, and that what they're doing and have done is important. The tension simmers briefly, but Leia has one final point to make. She asks a promise of Amorea, sworn in blood to do right by her family. Firm and resolute, Amorea accepts, and the god of the forge swears a pact in blood to the Archdruid of the Greynor Peninsula. Having given Leia all the information she needs, the Decimators return to the Hall of Open Secrets and prepare for the opening ceremonies of the peace talks in the morning. The Decimators join the Archbishops outside the Hall of Open Secrets along with a large crowd, wherein Lee's guildmasters are scattered. The Greynor contingent arrives, led by Grand Justicar Vin and the Amberforged, Vox. Alongside the contingent are prisoners released from the Hedron, part of a prisoner exchange negotiated as part of the peace talks. Mordecai's uncle, Sinus, is at the head of the prisoners. The ceremony begins, and the Archbishops, the Greynorians, and the Decimators are brought within for the first hours of the talks. The exchanges are civil and straightforward to begin. As part of peace negotiations, Archbishop Messus speaks for the Wilds. They want to keep their gods, keep the border between Greynor and the Wilds intact, and they want to see an end to the Hedron, claiming the magic and technology behind it as foul and immoral. Grand Justicar Vin speaks for the Greynorians. His largest request is for trade to be established between the two nations as quickly as possible. As Jackson had learned the night before, Greynor suffered a drought, and is experiencing a significant food shortage. Vin is even willing to agree to shutting down the Hedron. Anything for the food, his thoughts read. The Amberforged Vox displays a projected image of Amberai himself for all to see. Amberai seeks peaceful reintegration into society, and a third request, which he will only speak of to the Archbishops alone. Lastly, Zephyr speaks for the Decimators and for Amorea. He beseeches both sides who have caused such pain and turmoil for one another to truly set aside their differences if they wish to see change, showing the common ground they have taken in seeing Amorea freed and restored. With that, the opening concludes, and the various parties are seen to quarters for rest before continuing on later in the day. The Decimators and Amorea linger behind to touch base with the Archbishops. Preparing to leave for the autumnal line tomorrow, the Archbishops wish them well on their journey. Amorea thanks them, and makes mention of how he is eager to meet their gods. Mordecai senses uneasiness in the bishops following that statement. Quickly, they plan. They move up their timeline to depart Lee, gathering their supplies and allies, while Zephyr follows up with the bishops. Braving the truth, Zephyr re-enters the room and presses, pointing out the reaction, and claims if there is something wrong, or something they should know, they should, if it concerns Amorea. Archbishop Grex, well into his cups, lets the truth slide. The lords of the forest are gone. 
completely gone. After Amareya was freed, they left the celestial plane and left their divine spark for the bishops to continue to draw power from. However, without a godlike entity to control the spark, its power wanes. It's why the power of the bishops has weakened. It's how Mantellum has been able to take ground. It is a true and terrible problem for the archbishops and for Lee. Sworn to secrecy, Zephyr reassures them Amorea will be restored to power and that Lee will not be left without a god. Quickly, the decimators prepare to depart. Jackson and Amorea collect Chiron, who they rehire for the expedition, while Mordecai goes to find their promised guide, who, they learn, was no other than their recent tattoo artist, Rikar Shadowstep. Supplies gathered in Chirup Striders mounted, they depart Lee at midday for the autumnal line. On the ride, Zephyr shares his news, which only reaffirms their quest to restore Amorea. Ricard drills them on the rules of the autumnal line far before they arrive. One, stay to the path. Two, do not address anything off the path unless it addresses you first. Three, stay to the path. Ricard warns that the forest will tempt them. It is a deeply magical place and will do all it can to pull victims off the path. They have three days of travel before reaching the Crucible of Light. The decimators steal themselves and enter the perpetually golden forest. Their travel is largely mundane despite the constant threat of danger. During the evenings, each of the decimators is met with temptation. Mordecai's comes as a large and dangerous wolf-like creature, a creature whose power he could harness if he only could catch a glimpse which would take him from the path. He resists, barely. Jackson comes in the form of screams of pain and distress in the distance, the voice of Addie calling out for him. He approaches the edge of the path, but finds his restraint. He awakes Amorea, who helps distract him. Eventually, Jackson returns to his meditation and makes it through the night. Halfway through their travel, Ricard shares some insight on the forest. A malevolent entity makes it home here, a figure called Chernabog. He is an unseelie fae who hunts and roams this massive forest. Rikar even suggests the wolf-like creature Mordecai encountered was Chernabog in disguise. Regardless, they continue on their trek. The last night, Zephyr meets his temptation in the form of Chernabog himself. Time seems to freeze as the fae reveals himself. The figure forms out of a collected darkness, shaping into a bone-white animal skull at the top of the shadowy form. They discuss civilly and at length as the sounds of the forest die around them. Chernabog shares quite openly with Zephyr. He claims to have known Amorea back at the peak of his godhood and that he was slain by Amorea's hand. In his death, his blood spilled into the soil of the forest and the autumnal line was formed. He even made inferences that he possessed a divine spark that Amorea stole, shattered or otherwise removed from him. Unsure whether or not to take this figure at his word, Zephyr asks Chernabog what it is he seeks. Chernabog offers his temptation, a stone imbued with the power to tweak and nudge the flow of time whenever Zephyr so choose. However, every time he invoked the power, Chernabog would catch a glimpse through Zephyr's mind, his senses, and his thoughts. A brief glimpse, but a glimpse nonetheless. Pressing for more details, but finding none, Zephyr ultimately rejects Chernabog's offer, but deeply considers his words. In the morning, Zephyr questions Amorea as to the validity of Chernabog's claims. 
Amorea, pained, says it is entirely possible he killed the Unseelie, but his full memory still eludes him. The group breaks camp and makes the final leg of the journey out of the autumnal line. At the base of a mountain, outside the bounds of the forest, they are met with a temple carved into the mountain itself in the shape of a dragon. The Crucible of Light. Atop it, they can reclaim Amorea's divine spark and restore him to the celestial plane. Tired but so close, they begin the climb. For hours, they scale the slopes and stairs until they arrive at the base of the temple and contemplate their journey and all of the steps, literal and figurative, they'd taken to get there. They arrive to find an incredibly ancient temple, beautiful, brimming with light. The rooms are empty and abandoned. Signs of acolytes taking care to pack up and leave with purpose so long ago. They pass braziers burning with white-hot fire, chandeliers, forge tools, and old holy artifacts. They ascend further. Light refracts off of a mirrored ceiling, striking at several members of the party. The light shapes into mirrored reflections of each of them, taking fighting stances. They fight their reflections and emerge victorious after a difficult fight. Continuing onward, they face their second trial in the form of a door. The door requires a key, and the key requires an oath, which Jackson readily takes. He repeats the oath as Amorea recites it, swearing to always strive toward the celestial perfection of this world, to always try, and to walk the creative path with his brethren to improve the world around him. With the oath sworn, the path ahead opens. The decimators approach the final trial. Atop the mountain, amid a godly forge, they see the titular crucible, which is overflowing with light. A humanoid figure steps from within the light itself. Divinity made manifest. It regards Amorea, claims to have enjoyed its freedom, but the spark was made for a god, and a god has come to reclaim it. The divinity fights the advances of the decimators with blinding light and fire. The decimators and their allies are pushed to their limits. Jackson and Mordecai tear into the divine form with scythe and claw. Saphir and Chiron bombard the creature with magical blasts and volleys of arrows. Balit forms arcane wards to lessen the terrible impacts of divinity. Blood is shed and burned away on the mountaintop until... At long last, Jackson's scythe shreds the last vestiges of defense from around the spark, and Amorea reaches forth and claims it. Amorea's form shakes and tears, revealing fire and daylight and the cosmos themselves within his form, his body fading, his soul ascending. He makes his farewells to Mordecai. He asks him to tell Leah that his word holds to severe a reassurance that in time an end will come to Jackson a simple promise that they will see each other again as a light fills within him Amorea gasps and shudders suddenly urgently he bids them to return to Bulwark he speaks of Graynor Graynor and Something else, and before another word can be said, his form is gone. 
and light fills the open air. The dust settles, and the decimators tend to their wounds. They have completed their task, but so, so much more still lies ahead. They take the moment to enjoy their victory, to bask in the satisfaction of seeing something through to the end, and they rest. Their mission to restore Amareya Dejani began beneath the canopy, and their mission ends beneath the setting sun. Thank you for joining us here on Another Path Recap. And thank you to our own Griffin Coldiron, who wrote what you just heard. You can find our website and merch store at anotherpathpodcast.com, on Twitter at anotherpathpod, and our network at ghostlightmedia.net. You can support our efforts by donating at patreon.com slash ghostlightmedia. A very special thanks to our donors, Nate C. and Nathan N. Or by giving us a rating or review over on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher will let you. You can find me on Twitter at TQLoudly, Ryan at RyanRoll20, Griffin at GriffCold, and Zach at that guy Zach Rob. We'll be back in two weeks with the first episode of Season 3, Summit. And until then, remember that it's not always about the peaks, but the climb. This has been a Ghostlight Media production. production.